0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this version of Iconocast. I have a very special guest, a previous guest, Laurent Finet, who is a friend of both Greg and mine, and he lives in Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. And we wanna talk about some very important issues that are related to uh, both science and culture and the changing climate, as well as other issues here. One of the confounding things about science is that it's really sometimes hard to build a strand of what cause and effect are, whether it's climate or other issues that come about. And so working towards finding solutions can be pretty complicated. And so we can't just look at one issue and say, okay, well, this is what's going to fix it, or this is what's causing a problem. We have to look at pretty much the gestalt of the world and put together different focuses of science. So, Being an um, agricultural expert, Lauren Panay can work with looking at various aspects of how agriculture is affected by climate and human activity. And Greg looks at how science affects human activity. So they're Science is culture and culture is science, and they're all interrelated, and that's why it's always enjoyable to talk to and listen to these two gentlemen talk to each other. What we wanted to start with was the work that Laurent does in the diverse cultures of fruit trees and trees in islands and what we can learn from that. I'm going to go ahead and let Laurent do a bit of an intro on some of the work that he's been doing lately. Welcome, Laurent.
1: Uh, welcome. Nice to be here. Well, yeah. So I suppose um, I must present a bit of what I'm working on currently. But before that, I, uh, I need to put two disclaimers. The first is that uh, I'm today I'm really discussing with you science in agricultural science as a citizen of the world, and uh, the opinions I'm going to to tell speak about uh, are not. Uh, necessarily representing the opinions of my employer, and that I need to say, they might be the same because actually I feel like I'm very close to my institution regarding the strategies that it's uh, taking regarding the, the agriculture uh, challenges. Uh, so that's, that was the first disclaimer, but I'm required to to say it. Um, the second one is more personal, is that... Uh, I'm a huge fan of science, and of course, I'm a scientist too. I'm not necessarily speaking all the time about the, the evidence-based perspective. I have opinions, and I'm well. Um, I can form them uh, by experience, and that's an important part of um, of the of the job, actually. <laughs> and sometimes it's based based on observations and intuition, and it's not yet proven. And things, well, it's a. Uh, we still have to make discoveries or to to detail or to describe and to experiment. But sometimes we can form opinion before uh, we have a a level of evidence that are high enough. Sometimes I'm just expressing opinions uh, and not necessarily based on on science and evidence. And that's an important part of the subject. Because discussing, well, that's the way science works. And a, as a short disclaimer, I'm sorry, it's a bit stormy here today. And so the chickens are close to home and they might contribute to the debate. Well, yeah. So <clears throat> lately I've been um, on a project trying to, to, to record the diversity of food trees, food trees. I, I, I take both into account because sometimes the trees produce uh, vegetable leaves. But sometimes it's food and, uh, well, I, 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 want to record both and see how they are structured, uh, in the Caribbean region with the aim of, well, first describing what's here and, uh, what are the resources that can be used in agroforestry locally. And, and the, I started the project, um, a few months ago and we are currently at, uh, well, a good stage of sampling and and that's interesting because we begin to see things even if we did not proceed to the analysis but uh well that's uh, something i might be willing to discuss a bit
2: you know i I really appreciate that your second disclaimer a lot um i'm very familiar with your work and i know that that's where your work exists it exists at this edge between human experience which isn't necessarily easily observed as we might observe in science you know how a cell works or um you know some other thing and and at the same time using scientific approaches to understand what you're seeing and to me the biggest difference between like laboratory science and uh this kind of work the human ecology that you do and that I do um is context and sometimes it's it's the the framework that the phenomena you're looking at emerge in may cause that phenomenon to look different in one place or another and our audience is primarily an American audience, and I will defend Americans right now. Everyone knows or claims Americans are lousy at geography, but we're not. We all know the Pacific Ocean is out in one direction, we can point to the Atlantic Ocean, and we all know where Mexico is. Um, beyond that, we that's that has thousands and thousands of miles of geography, so that's we have to get credit for that. But I just want to sort of give people some context here. Um, you now, if you look at a map of the, of the U.S., there's Florida. Everyone knows where Florida is, and that helps define the Gulf of Mexico, which is a big sea that we all know about because Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, and so on, are, Mississippi, are on that. And then to the lower right, most people know that's the Caribbean, which, in, which is circumscribed by Cuba Increasingly people are understand the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, they know where that is. And then over to the right is a string of islands, volcanic, originally volcanic islands, known as the Leeward Islands or the Lesser Antilles. And that defines the right side of the Caribbean. And it is down in that region where Guadalupe is where you live and work, right? Yep. So people I don't know if this is so people understand. These are these are very small islands. You are working in French territory. You use a euro, do you? Uh, your... yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these so are things.
1: French territories. We, there are two French islands uh, in the region, uh, Guadeloupe and Martinique. Yeah. Uh, and and so there are also, um, well, um, all, all the region it did change a lot in a very uh, short period of time. So sometimes it was French, sometimes it was Brittany, sometimes it was the Netherlands. Uh, and the the Spanish didn't really establish there. But still, uh, the history of the Caribbean is really a mess. (laughs) Like sometimes it it was for a few weeks under French administration, and then it changed to Britannic administration. So the recent past is a bit messy. And and, well, in the end it's stabilized and it's still having a lot of consequences because economically speaking, the French islands are connected to Europe, while, the English islands are connected to either Canada or the USA. And, and this has importance, uh, if only regarding the, uh, the electricity you use for, uh, your everyday devices, but also the way you, you, who you sell your, uh, agricultural products and what kind of, uh, products you are selling. And well, we are still I think there is um um I would say the willingness in the Caribbean to be considered uh well uh a region per se with uh, its own cultural uh, uh so we are, we are we are really there is a willingness to, to integrate all islands into uh, uh some some federation of islands. Uh maybe not politically, but uh every island is, is just well, there are many people willing to do that, but uh, it's uh, probably a bit complex to do, and we should we should start slowly. But um, um, I think the willingness is here,
2: and it's important. Yeah, um, and, yeah. Uh, also, I want to give a, a sense of size. Also, um, Mike and I are coming from. We're in different houses right now, but we both live in the Twin Cities in you know St. Paul, Minneapolis, in Minnesota. And if I were to drive to Mike's house right now. It would be more miles than I would drive or fly to go from one end of the island of Guadeloupe to the other. The, um, entire, the entire island fits comfortably within Minneapolis and St. Paul.
1: Yeah, ge- geographically speaking, in terms of space, it's it's not it's not far at all. But uh, to get from one point to the other, uh, especially with the current level of uh, uh, <laughs> of traffic. it it can take quite a lot of time. So it's uh, um, the feeling of space, even if it's very short, it's it's actually long because you have to to drive uh, to one place to the other. And well, um, so it's much more reduced everyday uh, distance that you can travel is a bit reduced. And when when you plan to go to the other part of the island, because Guadeloupe has uh, two parts, it's actually the a union of two different islands, one is very flat on a, and calcareous and the other is a volcano and mountain chains. And so one is dry and the other is, is wet and, and it's very different. But, um, you, if, if I want to plan to go to the other part of the island, I need to, to, to decide when I go because the traffic jams are something you want to avoid. And this is also true for other islands. Um, sometimes it's really like, yeah, these are small roads. So. Uh, even and it has consequences because in St Lucia for example if if you are bitten by a snake uh, yeah. the, the hospital is very near but in terms of tra- transportation it's it's several hours so uh, you can die before that so yeah uh geographic geographically it's uh, it's uh, very constrained it's highly mountainous and and usually it bears the history like why the road was here in the first place how was uh, the, the ground occupied by humans and and we are still uh each island has its own specificity but it's really constraining locally i mean um uh, yeah and it was it, it, it in a way it, it was made at a different time and we are spe- we are still paying the consequence today because the modern world is a bit different <laughs> and yeah it has consequences sure and and you're um uh,
2: okay yeah so and your your work with uh, uh thanks for that that's really important context I think <laughs> looking at i mean it's it's also true that it takes forever for me to like to drive back and forth because of traffic but we are not on two separate islands separated by you know connected by basically one or two roads it's way different um and your work with diversity in fruit trees where where have you been doing that work
1: yeah well uh so currently we have uh, sampled uh both French islands of uh, Guadeloupe and Martinique. And we also have sampled um, Saint Lucia, Saint Vincent, uh, and partially Barbados and uh, the oh, plan. God. Yeah, so we have we have colleagues uh, who, we, with whom we work, and we we since it worked very well and we see it's important. We we will try, and that's a bit difficult because it we, we did not anticipate, and we are we are not funded for that. But uh, we will try to to sample Grenada and dominica and so the two other islands are smaller and uh, a bit nonsense it's antigua and sincroa which is very next to to puerto rico that's basically what we aim for and we are nearly halfway oh and well even with uh, a small yeah we well, are, we have not completed the whole work, but we begin to see differences in terms of species, the relative frequency of the species and how people use the species too. Uh, last time, uh, for the previous uh, podcast, I was just saying that, well, people don't use mango anymore. Uh, that's true for Guadeloupe, but that's not true for the other islands. Uh, it's really amazing. In St. Lucia, there are maybe four, four times more mango trees than in Guadeloupe. But you would have a hard time trying to pick a mango because just people use it. There is no, there is no fruit on the on the ground, or it's very uh, it's very uncommon to see a, a public tree with with fruit uh, on the ground. So there, there there is a huge variation both in terms of frequency of species and how we use it. Uh, we have not really investigated because it's really a starter as a project. It was really well. We are just beginning to, to record species and frequencies and see how it's uh, they are. Uh, well, I, how it, yeah, how they fit into the different islands, but use is, is another part of the project that we might be willing to work on because it's there is probably something to, to do about that too.
2: So are you at this early stage, <clears throat> excuse me, at this early stage, are you starting to see the kind of patterns you might expect for the basic ecological model, like larger islands have more species um yeah or 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 are you seeing uh what do you what do you think the main and this is really early it's probably too early to say with any definitive idea but are you starting to uh come up with hypotheses about what drives the variation you're seeing what explains the variation you're seeing
1: yeah uh, yeah well we were we were thinking there would be variation relating to uh, the environment in the climate, and there is a little bit of signature of 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 environmental factors, but that's not most of the issue I think. Uh, the, the the there is more variation regarding what people choose to plant actually, uh, because we we've been in the fields so, and we've been to we've been uh, uh, sampling backyards too, and uh, uh, and actually there is more uh, a much greater effect of. Uh, Of diversity in backyards than in 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 the fields. The first reason is really that the fields are uh, poorer in terms of um, specific richness. Uh, There are less species in the fields, uh, but in the backyards there is a high level of diversity. And it's well, we are. This is really the start of the project, and we 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 already begin to, to 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 see that we we will need to do. Do more work about that, because we see a lot of variation. there is both the, the common structure in backyards and the variation, and sometimes it might be linked to the economics of the uh, owner if he wants to to sell uh, mango jam, he will need to to plant a lot of mango trees That's, that, and so you, you see sometimes homogeneity in terms of species, not many species but very high number, very, very high density of some species. And on the other hand, there is a high diversity with single trees. And you you have both. And and we do not know yet why this is so. And we will probably have to do something else to to understand this. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, but it's usually it's very diverse, I I would mean, compared to the the space devoted to backyards, because history is another factor uh, in the equation. Um, Traditionally, the backyards are... uh, very small space because the whole Caribbean region is based on an uh, previous uh, slave economy, and 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 so the garden and the backyards were uh, for slaves to to feed themselves in addition to the work that you do during the day. So and usually it, it was a very small space. So we can still see that in in a way because. There are big gardens and and small gardens and and I wouldn't say necessarily that bigger gardens or bigger backyards have more diversity or more trees. Uh, so it's not the only factors, <laughs> and I will just say that because we um, I think the, the aim was really to to record the diversity first and and mm-hmm. yeah. it's really it's really amazing because we can see both. Small effects of the environment and big effects of the of, in the different islands and connections that we might have to to make between islands and some that don't. And yeah, at some point, that will be. Um, I hope we we understand how things are organized or how, what what are the drivers of species diversity for backyards, because yeah. most of most of the diversity is actually a backyard diversity. And it's really amazing in the Caribbean, yeah.
0: So I kind of wonder this. and and, um, When I spent time down in Arizona, especially down in the uh, Tucson area where they have several small uh, mountain ranges, they have the concept of uh, sky islands where there are species that develop above a certain altitude um, that don't cross over very well across the desert because they don't go... They don't spread like uh, at low enough altitudes where they could move easily from from one small range to another. But it kind of sounds like even within the islands in the Caribbean, there are like sub islands that you have, um, you know, based on you know the previous economies and so forth. But also how how there's slight climate variations in between different parts of the island. Is that does that help explain some of the diversity that you're seeing like um, some sub-island effect type of thing?
1: Um, well, what, what I really do see uh, with the data so far, uh, uh, it's really a qualitative assessment uh, per that I, because I did most of the sampling, um, is that you have connections or you have proximity in terms of species composition, island to island. And so some some falls in between two different islands, but it's apart from that, it's not really clear. And there are some islands that are really, well, really standing apart. I mean, Saint Lucia, for example, uh, you wouldn't have any backyard with grass or with a lawn. when you do have a, a, a backyard that's a bit bigger, you will have a banana crop. But to an extent, that's uh, really amazing, and I, I, I would say, um, yeah, if you if you if you look at uh, all these islands as small states who we which do have to 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 get to food autonomy, uh, it makes sense, and I I don't know exactly uh, how they how they fall into the continuum be- between. Uh, Dependence on, uh, on, on commercial, on commercial uh, exchanges and, and, and local autonomy. I know for the French islands, it's a bit low because, well, there is French support. Uh, but for small state islands, uh, they need to feed people living there and must do, I guess, because, uh, there is not that much of the starvation issue or hunger, but, um, there are different strategies, and 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 what I can say is that Saint Lucia, for example, really did did bet on on agroforestry at an amazing level. I mean, the number of trees on in the fields and in the backyards is much greater compared to the, with the other islands, and that's amazing because there is also yeah. Uh, I meet with uh, both with. Uh, uh, extension officers and and farmers and discuss with them and see how that project would match with uh, uh, local island objectives and well there, there were also many there was a strong interest in Saint Lucia uh, about agriculture and autonomy and, and and many things and they 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 expected advice but once again we we discussed it the, the previous times. Uh, I had to say that uh, unfortunately they were in, in a much ad- more advanced state of the art than we were. So I would not teach them; they would teach me. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and and once again, um, so I, my my guess is that the general philosophy in the Caribbean is that uh, there are. Orientations strategic, strategic orientations regarding agriculture and, and and priorities are different between the different islands and usually you get to the most advanced state of the arts when when you have one objective and it will just differ between islands and and then that's, that's, that's it and of course people want to, to, to get better at what they do really good already. And that's a right. difficult part of the job. That usually they are better than you are yourself.
2: So that's certainly been my experience in doing ethno, ethnography research. <clears throat> it's frustrating <clears throat> sometimes to see people ex- uh, go into an area briefly and come back with strong conclusions about what people seem to be good at or what they're how to do things, and you realize that was just the first phase of your research where you're deceived by what you see mainly um it takes a few phases of research before you start to even formulate the right questions I repeat so in, in in cataloging your trees do you uh are you looking at the are you are you recording the the age or size of the trees so that you could possibly see if there's a change over say a couple decades time and what people are planting based upon what the old what species the old trees are versus what species the more recently planted trees are
1: yeah well so uh, actually we did not and i I deeply regret it uh what, what we do have we do have a sense of it because we we sample new homes, so really more modern, more more modern homes and, and and we see what what kind of trees there are in the gardens and backyards and all, uh, abandoned houses um because there are a lot at least in Guadeloupe and martinique because um of the history of the how you can arrange legacy and inheritance, and and so there there, we, there are a lot of houses that are that belong to a world family, but nobody. If there is a single people not willing to sell or not willing to make the uh the file uh advance to some level, uh, it stay like this, and it's well it's falling into ruins. But you you can still you can still investigate the species growing in these gardens. I think there are differences, yeah, we see that uh my regret is that we do not usually for new homes uh people have not planted trees really uh, except for the cl- the classical the baseline mango trees that is everywhere in the Caribbean, but uh right, and so that's this information we do not really have, but for abandoned houses uh we can get a sense that. Yeah, there were species that were more cultivated in the past compared to now, and usually these are food. Some, at least one of them, the kinep, um, which is more uh, a species for the dry areas, but you can still grow them in the tropic humid uh, humid tropic. Um, it was it was more more frequently present in the ancient gardens, and now it it turned it turned out it's an invasive species. Luckily, at least this is discussed. This is uh, under discussion, yeah, and there are many people, especially young people, sometimes a the year they sell the fruits to make a little bit of money, and yeah, so we we see we see hints uh, that some species were more cultivated in the past. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Now, I I not not leaving the trees necessarily, but just thinking about another slightly related topic. Um. You obviously, these islands vary in how wet they are, and like, it tends to be the islands are wetter in like the west side, it looks like to me, versus the east side, and the islands are different from each other. Um, we have now, I think we are officially entered into an El Nino phase of the yeah. uh, ENSO cycle, which means, this is very hard to say, it, it, you can find maps online that show you maps of the world saying wetter here, drier there, colder here, warmer there. Um, but that's those are really averages. The The effects of El Nino, we know, is going to be increased temperature. <clears throat> in the Atlantic, <clears throat> there'll be reduced organized hurricane activity, which is good for Guadalupe, probably. Um, but typically, a strong El Nino causes your part of the world to get drier during the summer, during yeah. the current yeah. season, the next several months. I don't know if that's been your actual experience in past El Ninos, but... Do you see anything happening now, and how is, that going to, how is that going to affect things, do you think, in the next six months?
1: Um, well, I, I would say that, yeah, really there, there are seasonal effects. And actually, all the islands, at least all the mountainous islands with volcanoes, they do have an eastern part which is very humid, because uh, the clouds get stuck by the mountains, and it's raining more often. And the leeward side on the west is very dry, and it's true for most islands. And sometimes also we see differences in terms of of food species, but it's not it's not huge. Uh, some of the species seems to be affected, and there is usually uh, a closely related species I can take on those sides. Uh, I've seen that in Saint Vincent, where uh, well, I'm sorry, I don't know the, <laughs> the English names. Uh, there is wax apple. Uh, on the drier side, and there is a a similar species with uh, bigger seeds, and which is actually slightly better, but it's all a matter of taste uh, on the um, eastern side. But for most species, I do not see these differences. It's true that the climate change is going to affect uh, productivity of agriculture in the Caribbean, um, but I would say... Well, we we do not really, well, we can see effects of climate climate changing in temperate places, but not that much in, in, in the tropical places yet, at least in the Caribbean, because that's mostly what I'm focusing on. It's true that uh, the summer are drier or tend to be drier, and the rain tend to be more heavy in the rain season. So it's really altering the extremes or tra- changing the extremes. Um I, I'm not sure how it would impact agriculture yet uh, but for sure uh, farmers have to match crops and, and the weather they get and I would say the best way they can do that if they want to be productive enough is to diversify both in terms of uh, intraspecific diversity, agro-diversity and uh, between species because if you cannot predict what whether you will have the the safer bet is to be diverse so that you have at least one or several crops that can be productive enough mm-hmm. and that that's probably the safest bet, but there yeah. will always yeah. be farmers who will just just go on and try their things and 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 focus more on one crop or a few crops and succeed with that, but it really has to match with the conditions and it's really a serious bet.
2: Yeah, it seems <clears> to <throat> be being in an island, being islands, being in a tropical or subtropical sea helps being an island helps. And also, it seems like um, trees are buffered. So being an island buffers, you trees are buffered naturally over climate change period or any kind of weather change a little bit. Um, I I'm on, I'm understand is there's not a lot of is there a lot of irrigation done in these islands? Um, mechanical irrigation or complicated irrigation?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. actually on the drier part of the islands uh, at least for the French territories there is um, recourse to, to irrigation. Uh, I don't really know for the other islands because the way uh, the dry place and the wet place are uh, structured, I don't know that well enough. What I've noticed anyway is that uh, there is a tendency for the southern islands to cultivate uh, more, higher in, in the mountains. And it has very strong consequences. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I experienced that. If you have to, to, to see a farmer and, and you, you discuss with with them uh, in their fields and the slope is, is quite high, it's very easy to get down and discuss. But when, when you have to go out, go back, yeah. It, 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 yeah. In terms of uh, the physicality of the, of the small work, it, you have to to, to um, it, it, it's it's uh, it's it's demanding, and you, know, you you have to be fit to be a farmer in the mountains, and you work on slopes, and and well, the way they they grow, especially tuber crops, is is very impressive because uh, it's very well designed, from what I've seen, but um, yeah. I think there is a tendency to 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 make a use of uh, uh, mountain and uh, high altitude uh, fields that I do not see here, for example. But yeah. we, we can we can irrigate at least as long as we we do have the water resources, because the whole region has been experiencing a severe drought. Every island that I've been sampling on, people were speaking about the drought.
2: Okay. So there is drought. People do adapt to it. I know what you mean. I, I worked in um, a little bit in part of uh, uh, what is now Democratic Republic of Congo, where agriculture was done, and the, it was one hundred percent slope, nothing flat. Yeah. And people had giant legs. I mean, everyone was strong. Yeah. And able to go. And I couldn't. I could barely go up and down the hills. And I was fit. I was doing a lot of field work, and I was fit at my maximum fitness. And it was hard to keep up with the children and the women and um uh in fact the um you may be familiar with the painters work I think they're painters They worked in um Nepal looking at reproductive ecology among people living in highly sloped areas and um they using CO2 meters measured energy output while doing farming work among women to test for amenorrhea effects and they found that when women were walking up and down slopes, they used a certain level of energy, but when they were carrying children and firewood or crops they had harvested, they were using less energy, not more, even though their body mass is being added to by something like 20%, 25%. And it had to do more with just the way they walked. So when you're in that kind of level of stress, you might think when the stress increases, you you maximize but really what you're doing is adjusting the exact modality that you're working with and paying more attention. So their actual oxygen use dropped when they were under more stress slightly. It, 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 it didn't drop dramatically, but it should have gone up by a lot and it never did. So that's a whole area. Maybe you can get some colleagues in there to work on that. Laurent, the other thing you've been working on. Oh, I want to ask a very specific question. Um you have done research that shows how fungus disease fungal diseases of crops um one of the important things that you've learned to understand about them is where the funguses reside and hang out what the reservoir is for the fungus that can affect the crops and how that specifically you may have already answered this question but how that specifically can relate to immediately local weather patterns of wind and that kind of thing do you have do you um I, I, just This crazy thought occurred to me that's probably ridiculous, but I'm thinking about major storms and their ability to kind of uh, clean out those funguses and the frequency of these large storms being changed by things like El Nino or Enzo cycles, uh, so years in which there's lots of storms, years in which there's fewer storms. Do you think that um, – are you measuring that now or do you think that there may be some um, negative effects or benefits from having – um, things like more or fewer hurricanes, on that fungus problem with crops.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I've, well, I've made I've made a population genetics uh, survey of the fungus coletotricum in different islands a few years ago, and actually we still had all in the, the genetic data file. So I, I was I was willing to to fill the gaps. But eventually I, I was not able to secure funding for that. So I decided to proceed to analyze this and publish it anyway, because it was, uh, waiting for too long. And, and, and of course, yeah, well, recently. So it, it's showing very interesting patterns. And, uh, since I, I made the, um, this, I did analyze a, a, a bit more deeper. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing because that's part of the fungus, fungal system. Um, the Caribbean, of course, are just uh, archipelagos uh, and they are they, there is a pattern of stormy weather uh, in the rain season, which includes hurricanes of course and actually that's probably what happens it is that uh, the fungus uh, usually during rain season they they just multiply, and if there is a big storm they will the spores will just fly away, and most of them will die in the sea, but some of them will land in the other islands. And so what I did not anticipate enough is that there is an island that is standing apart in the Caribbean, that's Barbados. Uh, It's a much drier place. And it's amazing because there is a strong connection, genetic connection uh, regarding Colitotricum species between Barbados and and the drier uh, places in Guadeloupe. So probably there is something to dig about Fitness of the fungi relating to the climate, the local climate. There might be strains that are uh, doing very well in drier places. And in this case, Barbados is just sending spores to Guadeloupe and Martinique and the drier uh, areas. And in places where these areas are irrigated, we spoke about it a a few minutes uh, ago. Um, These are Places where uh, tubers are grown and they are more sensitive to this disease specifically. So, the dynamics of the system is we will probably have to investigate a bit more in detail because we, we, can, we can hypothesize, we can make the hypothesis about this in the Caribbean. But there is another phenomenon, which is the Caribbean uh, during the dry season and between the transition to the rain season they are experiencing uh, dust, mists from the uh, Sahara. And so if sand is able to cross the sea, the, the ocean, and go into the region, and sometimes it's going deep into Amazonia because it has a fertilizing effect, it can also uh, transport spores and fungal spores. And so the question is also, does West Africa contribute to, to, to the genetic diversity of this fungus in the Caribbean? I would really love to 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 be funded for uh, a science project with African colleagues, uh, so that we we can we can see if that's the case. Because yam is a little bit cultivated in in the Sahelian uh, Africa, but it's more more often cultivated in wetter area of West Africa. But still, the the dispersal process can can occur, and uh, uh, in my opinion, it can really cross the ocean. And we we we, it's not easy because um, when we study fungal disease, because of the history of the science, uh, we've been limiting uh, our view of things and the processes involved as you know, pair of species and regionality. It's very local phenomena, and we do not have yet in in sciences um, this view that. Uh, the pattern may be more complex and much broader than we uh, are used to think about. And that's, well, maybe I will be funded someday to, to conduct this research. Because there are some countries like Ivory Coast. Uh, Ivory Coast is, is growing a lot of uh, what we call water yam, which is a dominant species in the Caribbean too. And uh, not every island. Now I, I, I've been looking at, at the different islands. I know that's not really true. But in, at least for the French islands, um, there is a much greater level of cultivation of these species. So the link can easily be done, especially since this fungus, uh, you see, that's the way we see it's always a, a crop and a, a specific strain of the a specific species of, of, of the fungus. But that's what's, you know, when the spore is landing somewhere, it has to grow. And so it's a bit more generalist as a species than we think of it and it can still grow on on, on fruit uh, fruit trees, other crops, and even in the natural vegetation. So we we don't know a lot or we don't know enough yet, but there is probably a huge thing to work out regarding the the patterns of dispersal across continents.
2: That's fascinating (laughs) because yeah, you're right. There's a lot of, you know, we're literally, the Amazon is literally partially fertilized by, dust from the Sahara and you know it's it's strange to me it's kind of strange you learn something like if you are a child and you touch something hot you figure out not to do that again pretty quickly in science we don't have we don't learn that fast I remember there was an evolution the the national international evolution conference that happens every five years happened here in the Twin Cities back several years ago and the keynote speaker I don't remember who it was pointed out his point was there is no such thing as coevolution because um, coevolution was thought of as a thing that was interesting and unique and special between two species. And it turns out that everything does that all the time. It's just evolution is always interactive between the species and genomes. More recently, um, popularized by some science writers, uh, people realize that there's a gut genome in humans and, of course, generally anything with an intestine. We have Things going on in our, we have a genome that we link to that is not our own DNA, but that very much interacts with our very existence and survival, and you're talking about a global fungal geno- genomic phenomenon that links, and you know, it, you're, you're thinking too small, Africa and the Caribbean, well, what about the entire world, you know, if, if the wind doesn't stop at the Leeward Islands or at the Amazon, uh, probably the Amazon is contributing to uh, uh you know, whatever's downwind uh, to New Guinea. Um, there's, uh, it, it is an interesting idea. That sounds like a very fundable sort of project to get together, sure. very much yeah. so. I think that'll be really fascinating. And um, it's unfortunate, well, this may be why, but you know, that. okay, you're saying the funguses aren't that species specific. There aren't mutualisms so much between many of these funguses and the things that they live off of um anyway that could be why um i I'm going to another topic and i'm going to have to ask you to help me pronounce this the folk medicine remed resier how do you say that
1: yeah already it's good that's a okay that's a, yeah
2: well that's a, tell us about yeah. that tell us about your work in that area
1: yeah well so um <laughs> i'm really a geneticist and a and I'm working in ecology and evolutionary ecology, especially, and so I'm I'm really not an ethnobotanist, even if that's something that's uh, of interest to me. And recently, everyone knows there has been a huge pandemic, <laughs> uh, so COVID. Yeah, there was COVID, and then there was lockdown, and well, many states decided to 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 go for that strategy to try to limit uh, this virus. So many scientists uh, have had to stay home and, and and try to think about what what what's next. And my personal strategy was not to work on COVID or make models of how it could alter this and this. Uh maybe I was wrong, but that's not what I decided to do. <laughs> I had a lot of time if even if I had to to, to homeschool my kids. And um uh, there was also the opportunity because I'm um there is this uh, journal, Economic Botany, who was about to to produce a, a, a special issue specifically for the Caribbeans, and um, and that was something I've I've noticed interacting with farmers how they speak about um, plant species they use in traditional remedies, and people are very interested in that too, and so I decided maybe it was a good time to <laughs> to breeze a little bit and do something with all the time that I had. Uh, to do something a little bit different. And everyone else was in the same situation, like staying at home. So I just, and and going to, uh on internet. So I I i designed a, a survey about the uh traditional medicine, the local medicine known as the Razier. And I asked people on Facebook in, in gardener groups uh if they were willing to to proceed to phone interviews. And, well, it, didn't, it did not have the success that I was hoping for. Uh, so the sample size is a bit small, uh, but it was still enough to, to do something about it. And that was actually very interesting. Um, and then uh, the lockdown was uh, finished and people began to, to, to go back to social, greater levels of social interactions. And so I, I, I still conducted some interviews face to face and well it was a very basic question what i was really willing to know is are you are people using this uh these traditional remedies or not um and how how many people do and and really what kind of uh remedies they, they do because some of the remedies are uh ready for use like uh teas herbal teas and is very popular in the world usually i Yeah, but there are also more traditional remedies like leaf baths uh, that are directly coming from uh, African traditions, which are still living uh, uh, in the Caribbean. And so I was really willing to to investigate just that. It was uh, a bit descriptive, but my question was really, okay, people are speaking about this uh, a lot. And yeah, and it was very interesting because the results, grossly, they are that... uh, all the, all the traditional medicine is maybe not that traditional uh, uh, as we think of it. It's still a, it's really a dynamic process. Um, it may also have to to. I'm sorry for the roosters. It may has to do with a uh, Caribbean history of being a political mess. With if we, if we look a few hundred years ago, like two hundred years ago, uh, the political instabilities, uh, the tra- the trade roads, and of course, uh, of course, the, the slave society—it uh, it, it was really, it's really, it's really a big thing. I mean, you, you cannot avoid it. It's very foundational to the Caribbean, in good and bad ways, uh, and yeah, and so the razier medicine is really a medicine traditionally based on plants that people could use where they was, they had the right to go. And Razier means the bush, and it's really, it's really a place that uh, that was anthropized and then left back to nature. Uh, so it's not the forest, and it's not uh, it's not the wild uh, places. And most of the remedies, or the species, are what are, are in use in this medicine as, are coming from the uh, these places. And. Yeah, so the traditional medicine is evolving a little bit, and it's it make a much greater use today of uh, what I call exotic species, like newly introduced species such as moringa, uh, which is an Indian species, but apparently it had a strong impact, especially when cholera was still uh, an issue in the Caribbean. Um, and there are there is also a much stronger um, appreciation of of uh, food as medicine, like the lemon juice you can use, the ginger, uh, or uh, part of the plants that are used as crops, like guava fruits, you can also use leaves uh, to make teas. And so the the pattern was really that of the greater use of food plants that are grown in the backyards too. And yeah, you see, my research has a lot of connection. Uh, The diversity uh, of crops and the diversity of plants and backyard fields and that's also because there is a, there is a continuum. There is a, a strong continuum in the Caribbean region, and human activity is a bit of everything.
2: Yeah, I know, and I, I think I find it really interesting because, you know, to me, science—we're talking about science versus culture, right? To me, science is about—I like to describe science this way to people because I don't think that they quite appreciate it. And once it's appreciated, you understand science better. So I don't mean to define science narrowly, but science is in part the explanation of variation you observe by understanding the variation of what makes that happen. So what causes, people tend to think about averages. So they see a phenomenon and they think of the average of the phenomenon, but the scientists really want to look at the range and the variation and to see where what the, what, if something else you observe is within that range of variation naturally, or if it's distinct, that's what statistics is all about, right? So when I see this, your study, I read your paper and, um, it reminds me of a study done of snakes in, I think it was Mozambique, where the idea was just count the snakes. How many snakes are here? And the way you count snakes in an area, like anything else, is you capture the animal, you mark it, you release it. And then you capture another one. You keep going until you start recapturing animals that you previously captured. Then there's a, a mathematical model that tells you well how many are out there. Once you start recapturing, that tells you a, a, a rough idea of how many are in the environment. This study went on for two months, and they didn't single. They didn't ever recapture the same snake once, meaning the number of snakes in that in habitat, grassland habitat, was greater than can be measured <laughs> by science. Um, you saw a really large number of species and not a lot of repetition. It's like the point of these collections of remedies is almost to have as many remedies as you can get um, that. The di- or, or the diversity is, as you say, a result of this incredibly complex history uh, of both of the plants themselves, especially if you have you know exotics and invasives and the complexity of the traditions where people are using them. Um, I think it would be interesting to look at uh, uh, mod- at 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 recently emerged systems. Uh, so in the United States, for example, I can verify this. We went from a society where there were very few traditional medicines of any kind to one in which there were a lot of people using lots and lots and lots of traditional medicines. I'm talking about Westerners in the United States. Um, so in the 1960s, mm-hmm. you saw very little of that. And then in the 19, you know, at present, you can go into a store and find 200 species of plants, usually in the form of a pill or a capsule in a bottle that are all considered remedies to something. And we invented this incredibly high diversity of plant remedies as part of the new age movement. And of course, these are all remedies that people around the world were already using uh, mostly. Yeah. Um, but there seems to be a cultural phenomenon that itself may be driving the diversity because the plants supply more than enough diversity, right? Yeah, <laughs> plants are yeah. extremely diverse, and then yeah. the cultural part goes in there and just capitalizes on that diversity.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And actually, maybe not the starting point, but uh, I remember the first time I went to the USA. Uh, my parents were working there, and and so I was was visiting them, and I I met with a a, a Native American. And I spoke to her about uh, plants and the use of plants, and it was very interesting. And and at some point, she, she told me something that amazed me a little bit, uh, because that was not the view I had. But she said, um, plant species do not disappear uh, because uh, plants dis- don't disappear because we destroy the habitats. Plants disappear because we don't use them anymore. And, and and yeah, to, to me, I was really a young student at that time. Uh, I, I was just out and beginning my scientific career. And, and I was very young and naive, maybe. And so I had this, you know, uh, uh, I, the old way of thinking, a plant disappear because we, we destroy our environment and things like that. But uh, she, was a, she was true that things that we use, we protect them. And that's the whole point of protection, usually in the past area, uh, preserved area, uh, some of these places are still managed like this, but there was no human intervention. And then people realized that that villagers uh, uh, living near the the area uh, were experiencing or living this as a conflict with their own interests. And so we decided to have uh, buffer zones uh, in protected areas so that people could still use the plants and, and actually, um, humans are still a huge species in, in, in all the ecological interactions. And it's true that part of protection, protecting species, especially plant species, better is also allowing people to use these plants, yeah. uh, because it has a strong impact in terms of how the population are maintained or not, uh, the gene flow between populations, the way they, they, they mate, uh, especially in plants, because there is a huge diversity in plant mating systems. And sometimes when 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 humans interfere with that, uh, it's not always for the worst. Sometimes it's for the good. And there is a lot of work to do anyway about that. But um, yeah, with time, I learned that uh, she was much uh, right about this. And yeah, and exactly. if, if I don't, if I want to get back to the traditional uh, uh, medicine studies that I made uh, recently, I w- I've I've been amazed that there was everyone that I asked, and some sometimes these were people interested in the subject. So, of course, they would use a traditional remedy, but sometimes they were just random people, and nearly everyone used that traditional medicine. There was n- not a single case of people not using it even among random, randomly chosen people. And yeah, so it's a very small sample. It's only uh, 35 interviews, but um, everyone used the medicine in the previous year. And sometimes some people use them uh, every week. And sometimes they use it from time to times. And there was a small dichotomy that Well, I would say there are two populations. Um, a, a population of user more relating to the traditional uses which involves uh, going to the wild to harvest the plants and more modern people more modern user users which are really depending on their gardens or families and friends uh, to, to 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 use this medicine but that was to me that was really a starting point i think there is a lot to do uh and it also has to do with that when I interact with people, uh, farmers and, and and peop other people, um nearly everyone mentioned it's even as if they don't grow that crop, if it's not an official crop, um uh, sometimes the fields are still managed so that they there is space for these species to, to to grow there and and probably some some protection levels active protection levels by people.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I obviously, you and I both both read up and done research on related topics that the um, human plant interaction isn't just people exploiting and destroying plants. We are enhancing their frequency or altering them constantly. Um, this, I, 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 before we run out of time, I want to get to another topic, which I think is really interesting and important that you've been working on. And that is the just to characterize it you know in in, in uh, agriculture or plant and plant production and this applies to animals as well there's there's kind of two ends of a spectrum in one end you're doing mostly monoculture large-scale industrialized even you might even have uh, corporate um, sponsors running farms <clears throat> um your plant you're mainly in the in the uh, leeward islands you're mainly maybe growing sugar cane or something um in minnesota it's corn which is basically sugarcane with kernels. Uh, um, and the, alternatively, you're doing something we would define more as horticulture, where you're d- growing a diversity of plants, a diversity in animals. Uh, you have a, enough in a horticultural region that you could actually use this as your diet, as opposed to uh, a monoculture where you can't live off a single species. Um, and it's despite uh, despite people wishing it otherwise, on a calorie for calorie basis, you're probably going to get more production out of the monoculture agriculture than out of horticulture. But in terms of the diversity of what you get, you get a better ecology with horticulture. So do you put all your plants in intensive agriculture and reduce the amount of agricultural land that you use so you have wild lands to have your ag- ecological diversity preserved? Or do you use more land to grow the same food You have a more ecologically friendly horticulture. Talk about that for a minute.
1: That's a huge issue. Um, But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I think maybe I will have the non contentual opinion on that. Uh, Because it's probably worth
2: mentioning this could be a very political discussion. So feel free to (laughs) generalize.
1: Yeah. Well, um, first of all, what I would like to say is that. um, my, my, my actual opinion is that we need diversity as a technological mix anyway, which is, I do not favor specific, I have preferences, but I, I'm not, um, I'm not saying we, we should have all our, all our nothing, uh, uh, ways of producing foods and sometimes, uh, the, the industrial way will be better, sometimes not. And I think the the answer is to find a way to, to to have a mix of everything that we can do, and this includes um, uh, ways of uh, doing agriculture that are less popular, at least in the uh, um, in the scientist community, or that are popular for the wrong reasons, or things, yeah. So this is very my first point. Uh, I do not have a strong opinion uh, at at all regarding the issue, but I still have preferences. And of course, uh, my own experience and and my own research activity leads to the same stable endpoint, uh, which is if you diversify, you you of course you will have less productivity in the best crop you you can aim for. Uh, that's what we call realized productivity, which is really something that's theoretical. Uh, To achieve that, you would have to have the perfect cropping system in the perfect, in the most perfect conditions. But uh, even natural conditions, even field conditions are never meeting these. And so if you aim for more diversity, whatever the level of diversity you aim for, um, you can average your expected productivity. And if you cannot bet what crop will produce best, uh, that's a, that's a better way. To, to bet on diversity, and I'm experiencing it uh, as a pseudo a, a farmer because I'm 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 doing a lot of farming myself, uh, even if I do not have the constraint of having it economically viable. Uh, and but as I do see it in my experiments too, and and I I do see it. Usually, the, the happiest farmers are also those currently who are diversifying. So if you stick to the old way it works only in some conditions and since these conditions are may not be met in the in the future you better have to to change your ways but usually yeah yeah i can speak a lot about this and i I know there is there is a debate a strong debate in the uh agriculture community and 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 well diversity protection community which is, should we intensify agriculture so as to free more space devoted to wild nature left at itself? Or should we increase uh, land sharing and so coexistence between wild nature and agricultural activities? And I've I've been giving a look yesterday about uh, literature. Uh, At this point, I think the land land sparing has more... uh, people thinking that's a good way. And um, I'm still half convinced by what I've read. Um, It really depends on whether you're uh, looking at uh, big animals and and megafauna, or if you're looking at uh, all the diversity that uh, science has been traditionally overlooking, like uh, fungus, uh, insects, and uh, Small animals on 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 plants, and this is a huge debate in itself. I mean, just, I don't know if we can really get to to yeah.
2: to, to. I
0: think one <laughs> of the things that and, and I just heard this this morning on a on a video I was watching that uh, like Norman Borlaug's uh, uh, Green Revolution enabled uh, much increase in in production of cereal grains and and. Uh, various agricultural products, but in doing so, it actually changed the way that um, we produce food so that modern uh, wheat, corn, and so forth has uh, less amount of nutritional value uh, compared to what it was <coughs> uh, before the Green Revolution. And And, and so I, I, I understand what you're saying there as far as it, it really is not um, a set of easy answers on how we can change the way that we do it. agriculture to feed more people. If we're, if we're producing more food, but it does has less caloric or nutritional value, then we really haven't gained as much as we thought, it seems like. That's true that anyway... Since Google yeah. has found out that I have diabetes, it feeds me a whole bunch of different conflicting YouTube What's... videos as far as what, what types of food are nutritionally good and what what are bad. And... and um, so it's really kind of hard to sift through for a layperson you know without the expertise that somebody may have that um in in food production to really understand what actually is good for us and what is bad for us you know so the the volumes of food that we have to produce in order to feed a growing population just are is is a seriously confounding factor. <clears throat>
1: yeah well so so the issue regarding nutrition is of course that we need to have a, a high diversity in our diets uh and that's still be- best to have this diversity because it's also diversity in nutrients and uh to stay healthy you you have to diversify your own diet uh the, the issue is how how do it tra- um, how do production systems translate into high av- high diversity availability in diets and we, we we can have different ways to do that, is specializing in single crops and proceed to monoculture and, and then have high levels of productivity. Uh, but it's still not clear that we can achieve the, the most uh, proceeding with uh, monoculture. Uh, we 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 have the most of one crop. But even in smaller farms with a lot of work available, uh, productivity comes in some conditions to be greater. Uh, than in in monoculture setting it's not even that clear cut Uh, and if if after that if it's the way you buy consumers buy the the food um there are many ways to to get back to a diversified diet and of course this will also um vary between different regions and i think in the caribbean there is there is a specific uh issue that we can do most of uh, the things that we can produce a lot of things and a great diversity locally. And we we should aim for that. And actually that's what people aim for. I mean, most consumers they want to consume local. And it's already here. And we do have a lot of resources. But organizing the whole thing is a bit complex and it can it can be done by policies. By incentives, by many, by many many ways, and I, I'm I'm really not an expert into into these questions, but at least from the farming standpoint, we know that monoculture is 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 not. It's good for high, uh, reaching high levels of productivity, but it's not su- sustainable in time. Uh, it's degrading the the field itself, the so nature of the soil, and and. And the way disease declare in crops, and and many many studies aim at reintroducing diversity either at the species level, which is mixing mixing varieties in single uh, uh, fields or intercropping intercropping with other species. And so, basically, I think that's unavoidable. Uh, you cannot avoid that. You will have to go back to high diversity levels, even. Just so to ensure sustainability in the long term, anyway, that's a bit a uh, general conclusion. But uh, um, obviously, there are no, not there are not that many other ways to 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 do that other than diversifying. We yeah, can okay. still we can still do that at the regional level. Uh, we can still achieve that via rotation, but ultimately we will have to to get back to to something more diverse anyway.
2: One, one approach we're using in uh, the Midwest in the US now is um, it's called forever green agriculture. So uh, it's interesting if you look at a map of Minnesota, for example, every month of an agricultural region, you'll see many months the map is white because it's covered with snow. And for about seven weeks, eight weeks, it's covered with green because you've got a crop growing there. And for three months, four months, it's brown because the crop is dead. In fact, the crops are killed intentionally. It's called termination, a, a chemicals put on the fields to kill anything that's growing there at the end of the season. And then it remains brown until it becomes white and then you plant in the spring. So we're using our, we're using the land for a, a fourth or a third of the time. And during a fourth or a third of the time, it's eroding. Um, so the idea is there are these crops that grow low to the ground so that you can grow things in between and still use machines. And it redu- it reduces your productivity of the main crop you're growing, say potatoes or something, by about 20% a- at most. But it decreases your input of fertilizer and other chemicals enough that that, mu- that the actual net price of the crop that you're selling is significant, is 10, 15% higher. And then long-term, and then if you're lucky, this cover crop right now, the ones that are most commonly used produces seed that makes an oil that we don't use for anything. Not particularly, it's actually not, it's actually not edible, but they're working on making it more edible and they're working on using this oil for things like in industry. So, and there's other edible crops as well. So that's not monoculture, except it is. And it's not diversity, except it is, it's sort of adding two species, maybe um, dropping back overall productivity of your main crop, but increasing the value of the land, decreasing chemical input for um, and, and eliminating uh, erosion. And I've had conversations with farmers extensively about this, and the reason why it's not more widely adopted in Minnesota than it could be is simply for one reason. If you are a farmer and you want to hook yourself up with an industrial company and say, I'll grow your corn, they'll fix you up. They'll give you the money, the loans, you'll have corn. If you're a farmer and you want to do any of these things, you're on your own entirely, even though you will make more money. So it's basically how brave is your farmer and, uh, and, and how, how savvy are they about using these techniques. So therefore we are passing laws. We just passed some laws this year. We're making it more viable. We're funding it. We're making it some. We're going to expand it considerably, and our objective is to have cover crop farming over most of our farming in Minnesota within the next decade or so. So it's being but, done everywhere. Most another
0: advantage on that, Greg, is um, people forget how much carbon dioxide is exposed and released into the atmosphere from uh, plowing and turning the soil, and that reduces the turning of the soil. So it does allow the soil to retain. Uh, more of carbon dioxide yes. than standard practices.
2: Yeah. Interestingly, we have arguments about that. That is absolutely. says absolutely true. It retains carbon. It retains carbon in the in the soil, and a major source of carbon in the atmosphere is carbon we've released from from lands through agriculture. Um, uh, it's hard to put that forward right now. We're having a rhetoric battle, a messaging battle, because when you put that forward as one of your main ideas, people will counter and say, "Yeah, but it's a small amount." The thing, it is a small amount. The problem is how much carbon in the atmosphere makes a difference, a small amount, so we're only a hundred parts per million more than we want to be. If you can reduce from now on every year, one part per million, that means in a century, we fix climate change from that one thing you did. If you do 10 things like that, that means in a decade, we fix climate change. So small amounts matter because there's a lot of little small amounts. That's what horticulture is, right? Anyway, we're getting off the topic. Anyway, Laurent, our hope in in the United States and other places is that we understand uh, the genetic and biological, cultural, um, horticultural, um, and geographical and contextual uh, variation in crops and plants and better. So that we can do a better job in feeding ourselves and keeping the planet healthy and it's exactly your research and the kind of research you do that helps us do that i've always been an admirer of your research as you know and i think you should get a lot more funding
1: okay yeah i would definitely like to have to have more funding for specific projects but um i'm not underfunded it's just that uh, sometimes i would like to do to to have a, a um questions that are less popular. And well, right. but it's, yeah, that's still a way of doing things. And you can, and things are evolving. I mean, I'm clearly not pessimistic regarding science funding. Um, but still, uh, it's a way we proceed to evaluating uh, projects. And the same, the same way we, we produce science, and it really depends on the re- evaluating the proposal. And sometimes they have other priorities and sometimes they even have political priorities to to sustain. And it's all a a, a bigger, part of a bigger conversation and discussion that we all have. And it's important to have them so that uh, the words can reach the the most people and everyone discusses and, and, and take part of these discussions, not only scientists, but everyone should be discussing these issues and make them of their everyday life, especially when it comes to food, because food is still something that we will need in a in the future, so yes. it's important to discuss all these issues.
2: I agree. And this has been a great discussion. Uh, Mike, do we have anything else you want to follow up? I think we're kind of good on time.
0: I think we're getting close to the um, time that we had um, talked about. I know that uh, you had something at 11.30, right, Laurent? Um, so Yeah, it's been a great discussion, and any time that you want to uh, have a discussion with us, Laurent, just let me know, because uh, I learn so much from listening to you, and I think that our audience uh, enjoys the opportunity as well. Um, So thank you very much for contacting us and, and asking to be on. It's been my pleasure. Okay, my pleasure, too. Well, I want to thank both Greg and Laurent for participating in that discussion. I had a great time listening and contributing to it. I also want to thank you, the listeners, for staying with us. I know that we don't put out podcasts as often as we'd like to, um, but when we do, we get good discussions out of them. The next one will be a discussion that Greg and I have over nuclear power, um, the pluses and minuses and whether or not it's possible to replace our energy grid based on carbon using nuclear fuel. After that, we're going to be talking to Marlene Zuck about two books she's recently written, um, and both of them have a common theme of misunderstandings and misuses of science, so look forward to those as well. That should be up hopefully within a few weeks. Thank you very much, and thanks again for listening to Iconocast. (laughs) Iconocast.